This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here as always with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And then joining us again, always happy to see you back, our features writer, Julie Miller. Hi, Julie. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Well, people heard you on the show a little while ago when you talked to Emerald Fennel, um, but we didn't all get to talk to you then. And uh, I think we sang your praises then. So here you are again. And we're going to talk about Sundance. We're going to talk about the movie Supernova, which is out this week. We're going to have two interviews that I did with John David Washington, the star of Malcolm and Marie, and with Sidney Flanagan, the star of Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Um, And she can be our peg because she was among the many uh, Indie Spirit nominees announced today. Um, The rules of who does and does not qualify for an Indie Spirit nomination is confusing for me. Um, And, for example, this year, the movie Nine Days, which I did not think was eligible this season, is nominated. But as usual, it gives you kind of a picture of who are the big contenders of the year. Uh, you get to be excited to see some of your favorites show up. Um, as we're recording this, the Indie Spirits just got announced. So we're also kind of processing them. But um, what what made you guys happy in these Indie Spirit nominees? Oh, uh, the director category is, uh, what, four women and, and Lee Isaac Chung. So, uh, yeah, that was exciting. Yeah, that's a, that's a rock solid uh, lineup of movies right there. It's uh, Lee Isaac Chung, Emerald Fennel, Eliza Hittman, Kelly Reichert, and Chloe Jaw, to be clear. And Lee Isaac Chung was uh, obviously a nominee for directing uh, and Minari, uh, which got a ton of nominations, which is yeah. really exciting because yeah. that movie hadn't really been showing up at critics groups. Um, I mean, the performances, script, you know, it got votes, but it didn't win much. Um, so it's really great to see three of the actors nominated, Lee Isaac Chung nominated, the film nominated for Best Feature. Like, it's really showing up. And then it was on the AFI list. And, and so I'm really happy that Minari which still isn't out for people to see, um, <laughs> is gaining the, ever more momentum, I suppose. 
Yeah, Richard, you mentioned the AFI list, which we'll probably talk about along with this. Uh, AFI announced their movies of the year on Monday this week, um, which I think skews a little more big budget. Like Soul is on there. Um, Mank, which I think did qualify for Indie Spirits, wasn't nominated. Um, but yes, that's two two different snapshots of what people are talking about. One thing that I thought was interesting, like to make room for all the actors from um, Minari, One Night Miami wasn't nominated in any of the acting categories, except it got the Robert Altman Award, uh, which is, you know, the ensemble award. We talk all the time about how we wish kind of all awards bodies had an ensemble award. And I think that's a great film for it because we were we were going back and forth uh, the other day about like who should be in what category, how it's hard to pick someone out of that cast. So I think that's a perfect way to honor it. And then it just it made more space in some of the other categories for, you know, these actors from Minari, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in Best Feature. And I think like that movie and One Night Miami feel so twinned in my mind because they're both like, you know, based on plays and about these people kind of locked inside one room. Um, so it's you kind of wonder how they choose which one to make the ensemble and which one to throw in there. Um, but it's good to see them both rewarded for it. There's also, you know, the Spirit Awards, the criteria to be eligible, I believe, is budget. Um, yeah. I think it has to be below $25 million, maybe, which is, you know, a pretty expensive movie uh, by many people's standards. But that, you know, you see things like, I mean, as, as good of a movie as it is, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom sneak in. And it's like, that's a Netflix production. How is that independent? You know, so th- I, I don't know. I, I think that increasingly with streaming stuff eligible, I think we're going to see more and more of this question of like, what does independent technically mean? Yes, we set this budget cap, but, you know, Amazon or Netflix or Peacock or Apple TV Plus could all make $25 million movies and be eligible for a prize that's supposed to celebrate, you know, the sort of outside of the mainstream stuff. Um, so I, don't I mean, know. you it's, could also say the same thing for Nomadland, though, which is Fox Searchlight, you know, which yeah, has supported absolutely. a lot of like very small independent films, but is a Disney company. Um, and just to, just to be clear, I'm reading this from anywhere is twenty two point five million dollars is a cutoff. I don't know why, but that is. Oh, sorry. Twenty five million dollars is my salary. Sorry. I, I just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that number was just in my head. So. Yeah, no, that's your Netflix salary to, right. to keep talking about. <laughs> exactly. The um, speaking of eligibility windows, Katie, I, I did a double take when I saw Julia Garner on here, not because, you know, but she this is for the film The Assistant, which came out, uh, which which premiered technically 2019. I think it was like, you know, debuted in theaters in, in January 2020. But that like that to me feels like a film from a different era entirely. And I was like, oh, yeah, The Assistant. I saw that so yeah. long ago. I think The Assistant and Never Rarely Sometimes Always both kind of hit like and First Cow as well. Like we're all kind of early pandemic cusp movies that does make it feel like they came from a different universe. But I'm also, you know, Promising Young Woman had a really good showing here as well, both for Carrie Mulligan and Emerald Fennell. And, um, you know, I, I loved Julie's interview that she did with Emerald. And it's been like a really interesting late breaking feeling. Uh, you know, I, I was unsure whether or not it would break into the awards race. Um, and I think just people have really taken to it and embraced it and championed it. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that it would have a showing here, but it makes me wonder, uh, you know, what, what are its Oscar chances as well? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I'm I'm also very excited to kind of further down the list uh, for in the screenplay category that um, Bad Education got a nomination. Yeah, uh, which is written by I believe Little Goldman listener Mike Mikowski. He might not listen anymore, um, but that is such <laughs> what did a great. We do? Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't know. We've you know, been yammering on for <laughs> too long, um, but that's such a great script, and yeah. you know, it it got sort of overlooked, I think, by a, a lot of critics groups and things like that um because it was kind of a strange beast it was a, a film that was produced independently but then purchased by hbo and it aired on television on a saturday night in the middle of the pandemic and um so i was glad to see that recognized here yeah i mean the um indie, indie spirits have tv awards now i don't know if they're new this year or if they i know they're relatively recent um but you see like small acts show up in the um in the best scripted series category and i mean we used to keep talking about this but like the difference between small acts being tv and bad education being also TV, but still a movie. It's it's so fuzzy. Um, yeah. So it almost just makes me glad that they added more awards to make more room for this stuff. We're eventually just going to have to combine all this into like best stuff, you know, <laughs> <laughs> best stuff we watch from home still. Yeah. That's going to be a Golden more. Globe category when they announce those nominations next week. And the award for best content goes to yeah <laughs> to us actually. Yeah. Yay. Um, yeah, I was looking at the the list of what didn't didn't qualify for any spirits with this budget thing. Judas and the Black Messiah, which made the AFI list, didn't, as well as uh, Mank and um, Trial of Chicago 7, the Netflix movies. Obviously, Soul didn't, which is also um, on the AFI list, The Five Bloods. Um, but the thing is, like, you know, you look at the AFI list, you're like, okay, that's expected. And then in a certain way, you look at the indie spirits list, and it also feels kind of expected. And to me, it's like, we got we got about 15 movies. That's kind of it in terms of what we can consider. And it feels... Like like giving up because we always get to this point in the awards space where we're like, well, these are the real contenders and there's all these other movies that don't count. But this year, it really just feels like such a limited field. Not that there's not great stuff to reward, but there's just not a lot of room for surprise. That's interesting you say that, Katie. I don't feel the same way. Oh, interesting. Okay. All. It feels like a bigger field and, and, and a way in which I don't see like a solid. I think usually at this time we, f- we feel like we have a solid five like front runners. And I don't that know, I is don't feel that, that is way. a good point. Like I don't know who's going to win, but in terms of like what's eligible to be nominated, it feels like a pretty clear, relatively small group. I don't you- know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it feels it feels kind of broad to me. Um, but I, I I haven't sat with it um, maybe and really considered it that way. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I suppose I suppose I feel like usually even even with the expanded best picture category at the Oscars, usually there's like the five front runners and then like, you know, some whatever else might might get in there. And mm-hmm. this year I just feel like to that 15 because I don't know what the solid five front runners are. I then feel like the whole thing is a toss up. Um, sure. But maybe that's just a perspective shift uh, that I need to make. But it would be helpful to to narrow our, our scope a bit. What's interesting in terms of like seeing what's a front runner, I agree with you that it's like, you know, aside from, I guess, like Nomadland um, and maybe Benari, it, it kind of felt like everything else was fuzzy. But Sound of Metal has really been uh, just on this, on this cruise. Like it was on the AFI list, which I think was a pretty big coup for that movie. Um, Riz Ahmed got nominated for Best Male Lead. He's now feeling like he is, you know, almost not guaranteed yes. anything in this competitive Best Actor race, <laughs> but he's in a good spot. Yeah. Um, and Paul, Paul Racy, who, yeah, yeah, he was nominated for Supporting at the Indie Spirit. So I feel like that movie was something... We've been talking about we like we really like it, but like, is it going to appeal to people? And I think it's got just this pull that that everyone's really responding to. I'll say something about Sound of Metal, that, and I don't mean this pejoratively at all, but it's easy to watch. It's really easy to kind of get what it's about, to follow this journey of this character. 
it tells you something, I mean, tells, I think a lot of people something new about whether it's cochlear implants or about this community for deaf people that Riz Ahmed's character um, ends up living in and working in. And, and then it's kind of over. Like, I, I just, I think it's mm. sort of a simple, nice kind of contained package of a movie and it's on Amazon prime, you know, or Amazon, whatever. So it's just, it's accessible in a lot of different ways. And I think that's really going to benefit it um, going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it has like a good character through like it makes you feel like you've gone on a journey with the person at the center of it, which I think is always yeah. a nice feeling to have when you're when you're watching a movie. Well, it's an old fashioned kind of movie, but uh, in, in a kind of new fashioned way, you know. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. I think that's that's really appealing. And Defy Bloods is not eligible for any indie spirit, right? No. I don't see it here anywhere. Um, yeah. yeah so that that clarifies one of the big sort of conflict mysteries of the award season which is like where to nominate Chadwick Boseman and he's just here very firmly in one spot you know yeah yeah I mean I think we should note that next week we're going to get the Golden Globe nominations and the SAG nominations and we're going to record to talk about both of those um but those I think will definitely get some clarity on that question and maybe have him nominated both for both categories um and then I think give us a lot more information about like what those front runners we're talking about actually are yeah. And I don't mean to pivot, you know, we don't have to pivot to Sundance, but I think it's interesting that like we're technically in the midst, right? It's hard for me to know because it's virtual, but we're technically in the midst of the Sundance Film Festival, right? No, it starts, right um, it starts oh. this week. Okay. By the, when uh, you're here, as, by the time people hear this, Sundance will have started. So we are on the cusp slash nearly <laughs> in the midst of the Sundance Film Festival. Sorry, I've been watching some Sundance films. So, um, and, uh, and those films are eligible. So what if something like breaks out in a really hugely surprising way from that as a spoiler? Do you know? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a, a big question. And uh, maybe now is where we pivot to Julie, because Julie, we brought you here because you've been watching some of these Sundance movies. Um, and Julie, usually you'd be like banking a million interviews and getting ready to like run all over town on a bus and meet people. And obviously, Sundance is really different this year, but uh, like, are you getting a sense of a vibe of like what people are getting excited about or what kind of these films are hoping we'll get excited about this year? There are a few that I am uh, really looking forward to, including, well, I should say, was looking forward to Prisoners of Ghostland. Um, I am the biggest Nicolas Cage fan. At this point in his career, I don't know if he's an actor or more of a performance artist, uh, <laughs> but, but he teamed with this Japanese auteur filmmaker, Sion Sono, to make a film called Prisoners of Ghostland, which he has teased is his wildest movie he's ever made. So that right there, I mean, had had me very interested. And I, I just want to give you guys a little little tease of what this film is. Um, he stars as a criminal named Hero who is released from prison to rescue a governor's daughter, played by Sofia Butello, in order to make sure that Cage's character gets this job done. He is outfitted in a leather suit fit with explosives two of which are placed in his nether region. Um, <laughs> the character is introduced the first time we see him. Cage is essentially paraded into the town square in only shackles, a loincloth, and exquisite ab makeup. Um, I, I would call the film a gonzo spectacle. I don't know that this is going to be one that really gets into those awardsy conversations, but it's just, you know, something different. It's something different. Well, <laughs> and I think it's a good reminder that, you know, uh, among many other things, Sundance premieres a lot of interesting documentaries, you know. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but there are also a couple of films that were made during the pandemic, and it's interesting to see how filmmakers got around those constraints, those challenges. I spoke last night with Zoe Lister-Jones and Daryl Wine, who, who made a film called How It Ends in their Laurel Canyon neighborhood. Early on in the pandemic, they essentially put together an outline. Um, they were feeling a very apocalyptic vibe, and it's about Zoe Lister-Jones' character's last day on Earth. She's, like, making amends with friends and family, and she's just walking around her neighborhood, and she runs into friends played by Olivia Wilde, Helen Hunt, Bradley Whitford, Charlie Day, Fred Armisen. It was interesting talking to them about kind of getting back to their indie roots, and I think there are other filmmakers who who maybe did the same to get their projects done. And in a way, that's a nice nice little sub-narrative, I guess, for Sundance, since it is such an indie, indie-focused festival. Yeah, I'm really interested to watch how many films we see that were filmed during the pandemic in some way, because I think in How It Ends, you can you can tell both because of the apocalyptic vibe and I don't think they really make an effort to hide the fact that like everyone's standing six feet apart, like it's all kind of part of the mood that they're establishing. Um, but I'm curious about who else we're going to see trying to work around that. Right. What else? What are you guys especially excited about? Richard, you've probably seen more than I have at this point. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some things and there are stuff that they're not screening ahead of time, which tends to be the kind of bigger, more marquee things that they wait till the actual festival. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we have a couple things that are like maybe awardsy, like Robin Wright directed a movie called Land that she also stars in. Um, there's uh, the Rebecca Hall film Passing with Tessa Thompson yeah. uh, uh, about two um, sisters in, I think, the 1940s. That's a big one that like they're not showing as far as I know, um, yeah. which to me has increased the amount of intrigue around it. Yeah. So so there's there, there is stuff like that that would, would sort of generally fall under our sort of the, the purview of this podcast anyway. Um, it's a smaller selection. I mean, there's no denying that, you know, I think I think for two reasons, I think one probably some filmmakers were like, now nah, we'll just wait, you know, we don't want to do a virtual screening thing. And two, like, you know, I know some studio movies, some TV production and, and some indies obviously uh, were able to to make production happen during the pandemic. But I think probably a lot weren't. You know, yeah. I, I think there was just a, a much smaller pool of things to, to pull from because I think a lot of movies at Sundance would have been made in the last, you know, are, are made like the year before, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit uh, it's, it's it feels a little thin. But um, I think one thing that I'm increasingly uh, that I need to pay more attention to and have been trying to over the years is Sundance's kind of horror aspect. And they they, they tend to premiere more and more each year like some big kind of artful horror movie. They're sort of one of the engines of this so-called prestige horror boom. You know, they had The Witch, they had Hereditary, they had The Lodge. Um, they premiered Get Out. They premiered Get Out, exactly. Um, and so I, I'm trying to be less of a chicken about horror stuff. I forced myself to see Hereditary <laughs> in a theater in Park City a couple of years ago. Um and I have watched uh, one movie called Censor that's going to be at the festival. That's that's really interesting. Um, so I'm yeah, I'm trying to kind of sift through that that realm and see if there is a Get Out or a Hereditary or a Witch like lying in there because oftentimes I feel like those are the biggest breakouts from Sundance in recent years. Yeah. In terms of documentaries, I'm excited about the Rita Moreno documentary. Yeah. And also there, there's a, a smaller, I guess, a little lesser known um, film called Searchers, which was filmed during COVID. And I'm just curious about it. Essentially, the filmmaker Pacho Velez 
He, he filmed different New Yorkers kind of as they were scrolling through their dating apps during COVID, which to me sounds a little bit like a horror horror film in <laughs> itself. But, but I'm curious, curious to see how that does. Um, I have I've only seen a handful of movies, but one of the ones I did see that will be at Sundance and premiered at Venice last year is The World to Come, um, which was the other movie that Vanessa Kirby won Best Actress at Venice for. Um, she's kind of mostly... I would say she's a supporting player in the world to come, but it's this really fascinating period piece about um, two women kind of living on farms in upstate New York in 1854 or so. Um, and it seems completely miserable. It's like, like it's very beautiful, but like the idea of living on a farm in a mountain in winter uh, with no central heat or like antibiotics just seems awful. Um, but it's her and Catherine Waterston as these two, um, you know, like farm wives who meet each other and fall in love. And it's kind of this really lovely story that unspools from there that also just has this like, really sharp ideas about like how women are recorded in history and how their stories from a period like this are told. And it will be it's coming out from Bleecker Street before the Oscar eligibility window ends. Um, I'm curious, I guess mostly curious about how it would play into Vanessa Kirby's Best Actress campaign for Pieces of a Woman, um, because I'm not sure she would get nominated for both. But um, I think it's a really great movie and worth talking about. Have you anybody else seen it? Love Vanessa Kirby. Just love Vanessa Kirby in anything. Yeah, I mean, after all the, our crown, um, you know, <laughs> indoctrination right. will follow her anywhere. <laughs> I, want, I want to loop back to that. Are we surprised that she wasn't nominated for anything at the Indie Spirits? Were oh, that's a good question. That's, eligible? I don't know if The World to Come was eligible for Indie Spirit. I don't know if I truly, I don't, I mean, it hasn't come out yet. I don't think it had an eligibility release. Um, was Pieces of a Woman eligible? I would imagine so. Um, yeah. Oh, I, that is just a blow to her after that Stunning 25-minute opening sequence that was all filmed in one shot where she essentially gives birth. That If that doesn't get you a nomination, what does? <laughs> yeah, and they, were had, they had six uh, Best Actress nominees uh, at the Indie Spirits as opposed to the usual five. So they were already expanding the category. Um, but then again, like, who are you going to kick out of that list? Like, that's a, it's a great list of female nominees at the Indie Spirits. It's true. It's just, it's like the, the Vanessa Kirby narrative was so strong coming out of, like, what summer of and, and fall of last year. And it sort of seems to have sputtered in a way that you like, don't want, <laughs> I don't know. You, we, like you, we, we have a lot of questions about the longevity of arcs of award arcs this year. Yeah. And, and like promising a woman seems to be a good example of like a late breaking arc versus Vanessa Kirby, maybe like peaking too soon. Um, yeah. it's, not over. S- it's not over. It's just interesting to me yeah. that she's not there. And the same is true for the father. Uh, I don't know if the father was eligible for Indie Spirits, but it's not there either. And and so I think the f- you know fa- Indie Spirits is American movies. It might have a eligibility problem for that. Um, okay, because I think it's. I think it's a British movie. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I feel like we should have an Indie Spirits expert on next week to explain all this for us. Um, but no, I agree that the father does feel weirdly muted. Um, which is a shame because it's really good. We talked about it a bunch on this podcast. Um, and it premiered at Sundance last year as Promising Young Woman did, but it hasn't kind of had the surging back that Promising Young Woman has. Um, what else? I mean, we'll talk about Sundance next week in addition to the Golden Globes and SAG nominations. Um, for Richard and Julie, for you guys, like, are you expecting a Sundance experience from any of this? I'm planning to go to at least one of the virtual parties that they are having, which sounds strange but intriguing. Um, I'm curious about how that goes. Like, Are you guys going to do anything to try to make it feel like a, a proper film festival? I mean, I'm probably just for the fun of it going to spend $2,500 on a small room with no heat. 
that's yeah. half buried in snow. Uh-huh. Um, just to like you feel like I'm there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I the virtual party thing sounds interesting. I, I really I, I really appreciate that the festival is trying. You know, yes, me too. and they're, they're trying to make it an experience. And I think that's not just for past buyers, you know, these kind of wealthy patrons who spend all this money. Uh, it's for everyone. It's for the filmmakers. It's it, it, it's it. They are trying to, like, make it feel like an event, which we all kind of crave, I think, these days, uh, a, a good event, not a tragic right. or scary one. There also is a part of me that's like, can't we just not let's just not pretend like it's not real. Like it's not the same. Or it's not it's not that it's not real. It's just not the same. And I kind of there's a part of me that's just like, why, why don't we just kind of all admit that collectively? Mm, um, right. But I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to bundle up in snow gear. I'm going to find a bus somewhere just to get <laughs> on it. Yeah, you got to ride it in circles cool. and not get to where you're trying to go over the course. Exactly. Of the, the bus ride. I'm just going to hire people to stand in line with me for hours. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting because I feel like in years past, especially Sundance has so leaned heavily into the, you know, the gifting, gifting sweet angle of it just in terms of the commerce of it. So there's mm-hmm. something nice about this feeling like it's a little bit more into movie centric in a weird way. That's true. Um, I've always really felt for the actors who have to, you know, the biggest premiere location at at Sundance is literally a high school auditorium. And these actors have to like bundle up to get into a car to get to the venue and then walk into a high school auditorium and like wear, not like couture, the the dress code is a little bit more low key than other festivals, but like really dress up in not exactly hospitable conditions. And I wonder if they're secretly happy to get to stay home for this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I like that Julia brought up this idea because the the first Sundance that I ever, ever went to, the slogan was focus on film. I think it was like directly after like Paris Hilton had first shown up at the Sundance Film Festival and people were like, oh, it's no longer the indie film festival it was. It has now become this celebrity fest. And like, you know, that ever since has always been a part of Sundance. But we've been talking this year, this year of the pandemic, about the accessibility of some of these film festivals for people who love film but can't travel to Utah or can't watch the film exactly when it premieres, but um, these Sundance tickets give you like a, a window to watch the films in. Um, I think it's still, you know, they're still, they're still, as Richard's saying and Julie's saying, they're still trying to preserve that sort of um, live event feel. Like if you buy a premiere ticket, you do have somewhat exclusive access to like Q&As and stuff like that. But I do think this idea of like, if you're a film lover, but you don't have the luxury of taking time off of your job or you don't have the funds to travel, um, you can still kind of go to the Sundance Home Festival this year, which is kind of fun, you know. Right. There are so many people you see on Main Street in years past that are not there for the films. They're kind of there for the social scene, the party. So it's nice that the people showing up to watch the films this year are those because they love film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, I mean, I think that in, in I think it was maybe just last year that I noticed this. There would be there was a little thing, you know, there's a whole bunch of pre-roll before the movie starts of when you go to a premiere and ads for sponsors and all that stuff. And there was one that was like, look for this sticker in the window that says official uh, on Main Street, like official Sundance venue or something. 
as a way to kind of, I think, kind of reclaim the festival from all of the sort of barnacles that had grown on it, like mm. the, the branded lounges and all that stuff. Um, so maybe this is kind of like a radical return to like the purpose of it. <laughs> um, and and we'll see what the, the the festival in its return, hopefully into a physical festival looks like next year. Like maybe some of that fat will have been trimmed or something. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, before we go share the interviews I did at the end of the show, um, let's talk about a movie that people can watch this week, uh, whether or not you're going to Sundance. Um, there's the uh, the Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth love story that I, I, mean, I guess we are, really have been clamoring for. Uh, but I didn't I didn't know I needed it so badly until it was announced. Um, Supernova. Julie, you talked to Stanley Tucci about the movie and that story like got a lot of it, traffic. Like people really were excited to read about it. So uh, what did you learn about Supernova? Well, I think the gift for me was in learning how how close Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth are in real life. They have been for 20 years since they did this HBO movie called Conspiracy, where they played Nazi officials. I don't know how much of a meet cute that is, but <laughs> that is where they met. And in recent years, um, Stanley Tucci moved to London, and he spoke about how they've been there for each other um, throughout this whole time they both went through some, I guess, personal difficulties, but they've remained close so much so that when Stanley Tucci got the script um, for Supernova from Harry McQueen, who's done one other feature film called Hinterland, he passed the script to Colin before even telling the filmmaker. That's how much he believed Colin would be great. Um, in the film, they play kind of long-term romantic partners who are taking one last road trip through England's Lake District. Um, Stanley's character has early onset dementia. So it's it's a little bit of, of a downer. You know that that specter is kind of looming in the background throughout the film, but they are just so sweetly convincing in their devotion to each other. And Stanley talked about how easy it was to kind of channel into that given, given their relationship and their closeness. And it was really sweet to hear just in terms of filming because they were in these remote kind of holiday camps. They were living in side-by-side cabins. And each night, um, because there weren't really any restaurants around, Colin would go to Stanley's cabin. Stanley would cook him dinner. They'd open a bottle of wine, um, which is kind of just... Isn't that a dream? So that's kind of, that was my main interest. I just wanted to, to plant myself in, in that reality. I can't decide if I would rather do that with a real friend of mine or do it with Stanley Tucci. Like both sound pretty. <laughs> oh, I don't, none of my real friends merit that. No, no. <laughs> no. They can't make a Negroni like Stanley no. Tucci can make a Negroni. No, it's Tucci only. <laughs> Tucci only, I know, and he has he has a CNN show coming up in February where he just roams through the various Italian regions, learning about their food, getting in the kitchen. It, it was a it was a fun conversation with him. What can't Stanley Tucci do? It really sounds like Stanley Tucci has achieved the level of fame that I dream of, where someone will let me be on a travel show, like host a show where I go and like eat food in a certain country. Um, I would love to be famous for that alone. So. Yeah, Stanley I mean, the platonic me ideal of that is the wine show with um, Matthew Good. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 like that is like that is like, and they know it on that show. They're like, this is ridiculous that we're in this like villa drinking wine. Um, and I kind of hope there's that same energy in the Tucci thing, which is like, yeah, yeah, this is like an incredible privilege. So, so like, join me in my crazy good fortune. You know, while you're locked in your house for the eleventh <laughs> right. yeah. month in a row. Yeah, Katie, Katie, bring back lifestyles of the rich and famous. Only it's like a pun on your name, and it's just <laughs> about did, you. Did Robin around. Leach get to travel around? Was he? I guess he was always visiting those people's houses. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds great too. I accept either food food show or ho- house show for me. <laughs> Thank you very <laughs> much. Um, Joanne and Richard, you guys both also watch Supernova. Anything anything to add on it? I mean, I, I agree with Julie that the relationship is really convincing. The the like intimacy, I think, between these two um, great actors, and it is there are great performances. It was a it was a bit of a tough sit for me. I think we're making a lot of choices right now about what kinds of stories we feel like uh, we're up for uh, in, in this pandemic and the, the subject matter was a, was a bit tough for me, but, um, I cannot argue with the performances and then just sort of like, yeah, it's one of those like experiential porn sort of movies where I'm like, I want to be <laughs> an the, like, older district. writer with my <laughs> beautiful concert pianist husband traveling around the Lake district and having lovely house parties and like whatever, you know what I mean? I was like, yeah, this, th- that could be my life in, in a couple of years. Right. Um, so yeah. And, and it's just gorgeous. Like the Lake district, uh, which reminded me a lot of, uh, I've never been to Lake district, but the, the images of it reminded me a lot of Scotland and it's just sort of these like gorgeous, hillsides and just completely and then you know since they're traveling they're traveling in a camper van there's just a lot of shots where it's just their camper van and the vast sort of wildness and that's those are beautiful um so you know it's a it's a bit of a travel show itself so there you go oh well i can't see an end green light a show in which colin firth and stanley tucci travel around wherever i don't care in an rv i, I would watch that in a second absolutely absolutely you have to give us 10 percent cut when it gets green light just that, that, that's legally binding <laughs> Yeah, we're going to branch into reality TV producing uh, <laughs> this podcast. Yeah, I, I think it is lovely. Um, they're also obviously great actors. Um, I think a little bit of that loveliness felt a little mannered for me. Like it was a little bit like, OK, so you've seen the movie 45 years and now you're trying mm. to do that yourself. And mm-hmm. I, I don't I didn't feel a personal connection from the filmmaker. Like it, it felt a bit static in that way. I also think, you know, there's going to be the question of these are two straight guys playing gay men. I think both Tucci and Firth have kind of in in this one gay man's mind, like have kind of earned it. Like, I don't it doesn't really bother me the way it might with other actors. You know, I think this is definitely vastly better than a single man. Uh, the other another Colin Firth movie where he plays a gay man. I really loathe that movie. Um, he got an Oscar nomination for it. Yeah, he sure did. Um but, you know, I, I so, yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I, I, I do think that, you know, what you've all said about it being a downer. Uh, it's going to be a major impediment to people seeing it, you know, because you read the, it's like, oh, you know, the two sentence or one sentence log line and you're like, OK, OK. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> when you get to the last third of the sentence. Um, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. I guess the father is maybe facing the same thing as we're talking about why that movie seems to be receding because it's it's also dementia stories are a downer. But um you know, I just double checked just so everyone can stop writing their father emails to us. Um, it is not eligible because it's a French British production. So Ha-ha. you were right. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Supernova is VOD this week. It's uh, you can like rent it from iTunes and such. I think it's theaters and then VOD, VOD a couple weeks from now. Yeah. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Yeah. 
But do yourself a favor. Have you guys watched the 80s Levi's commercial featuring Stanley Tucci? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a must watch. Until until his uh, Italy travel show debuts. We can just watch that on a loop uh, right. until then. Okay, one last title that's out this week. This one on in theaters and on HBO Max, I believe. Um, it's The Little Things, which is a detective thriller. It uh, is both set in the early 90s and feels a little bit like a time capsule from the early 90s. Uh, it stars in Washington with Rami Malek and Jared Leto. So three Best Actor Oscar winners. That's kind of a rare sight. Um, there, it, I enjoyed the throwback quality of it while also thinking it was yet another of the Stone Cold Bummers we're talking about this week. Um, Richard, I think you might have enjoyed it less than I did even. Yeah, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> um, I, I, I really wanted it to be something specific. You know, I think it's funny that it's of that time. You know, it was written in the early 90s. Steven Spielberg was supposed to direct it. Uh, Which I cannot imagine that. No, that's no, so that's strange. Bizarre. Um, and then I think Clint Eastwood was looking at it and Danny DeVito. And then finally, John Lee Hancock, who wrote it, decided to make it himself 27 years later. Um, and I wanted it to be kind of one of those 90s post Silence of the Lambs serial killer studio thrillers, you know, Mm -hmm. a little grimy, kind of silly, but like engaging, you know, good detective work kind of stuff. Yeah. And it has those trappings, but at the center is kind of a, there's a weird void at the center. Like, I think it's, it's kind of trying to be about something bigger and fails at that. And so everything else kind of doesn't get its proper due. You know, Denzel Washington's always good. Rami Malek is fine. Jared Leto, you know, I think people... People's tolerance level of him certainly varies, and and he's really doing a thing, you know, he's as doing he a does. Lot. Uh, and I found it engaging for like the first scene, and then I was like, okay, I get it. Like I don't, need, I don't need more of this. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was just like it it had all these interesting component parts, but the whole didn't really didn't do it for me. It's tough. It's not really fun in any way. Like no, there, there is fun in watching Denzel Washington like crack a case, and so there's parts where you're kind of watching him do the detective work and see things that nobody else is seeing, and like. God knows there's no one better at playing, like, hyper-competent people on screen than Nizel Washington. So, like, I like that. But then, like, he's tortured and Rami Malek is tortured and Jared Leto is, you know, the one they suspect of being the serial killer. And it's just – it's hard to escape that darkness. And I don't know what it is about Silence of the Lambs that is about super dark material that allows you to escape out of that. Um, But it doesn't have that, like, that sense of of enjoying it at all. Yeah. And there's also, without spoiling anything, a thematic – ribbon throughout the thing that like really clangs uh, badly in this time of of really mass reconsideration of like policing in this country um that i think will really put people off um if 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 people read it the way that i did which i think is kind of the main way it's supposed to be read yeah it's certainly a cop movie kind of made before or there was this massive reconsideration last year of how cops work right but again it, is, it does have a throwback vibe. I'm sure there are other movies on HBO Max from the actual 90s you could pair it with um, for some kind of double feature this weekend. When I mean, or people could see it in theaters in theory, but I imagine this is going to be a strong HBO Max play. And I think, I mean, as in our purview as awards people, I, it's coming out in January, but I would not call this an awards contender for this year, right? No, 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 not at all. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... 
Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, now let's share the interviews that I did for this week. First up, uh, we're going to hear from Sydney Flanagan, who, as I mentioned, is a newly minted Indie Spirit Award nominee. She was also nominated for a Gotham Award for her role in Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And she is kind of one of those breakout performers you get every season where she's basically never acted before. She was a musician. She had, you know, a, a career as posting videos on YouTube. And the director, Eliza Hitman basically, in, in some ways, wrote this role with her in mind and then encouraged her to audition and to become an actor for it. Um, and it's really interesting just hearing from her about how that made transition in her life has been, even though for the past year she's been in her house kind of watching this movie get received and celebrated. So let's hear from Sydney Flanagan. Okay, well, first, uh, Sydney Flanagan, I'm welcoming you to Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for hopping on Zoom to talk to me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So as we record this last night was the Gotham Awards, and I saw your look that you put together for uh, what I think was a Zoom-only award show. What exactly was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was all virtual, and we went to Eliza's house, me and Talia, and um, we just kind of, you know, sat around the laptop and, you know, had some drinks and food and got to see each other and just, like, watch the awards virtually. And, you know, it was my first experience ever like experiencing any sorts of award shows so it was definitely pretty unique that it was virtual and not in person um but it was still like just nice to see eliza and talia and be together for a night since it's been so long since we've all seen each other what has your pandemic been like have you been in buffalo have you been in the city have you have you traveled some yeah i've been in buffalo the whole time i haven't traveled like just now is the first time i've gone outside like the furthest I've gone outside my neighborhood since everything began. (laughs) So um, it's pretty wild, like, being somewhere else right now. And traveling was strange, you know, being on an airplane and everything. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, most of the time I've been in Buffalo, just uh, not really working, just kind of hanging out at home and trying to keep busy and self-taping and stuff and working on music and whatever else. So have you kept busy with music, like, similar to the way that you did before you made this? Like, have you been able to kind of keep up your pace since you were doing so much of your own work on your own anyway? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, like, I started a new band, and um, we did, like, record, like, a demo and put that out last September. So I practice a bit with my band right now, but the only thing is we can't really do anything outside of writing, recording, and practicing. Like, we can only really do that. We can't play shows or tour and... So, like, we're definitely really excited 
to like do that kind of stuff again because that's like where all the fun is. Yeah. So like when you're out promoting this movie in the spring and like people are talking about it, and it's getting good reviews and you're doing press. I imagine you have this sense of like a big change coming into your life. Like this is like a, you know, it's your first acting role. All this stuff is happening. And then the pandemic starts and you kind of go back home. Like, did you have this sense that did you have a sense that your life had changed as a result of this movie? Or what did the pandemic make it so that everything just felt like on pause the way it did for so many of us? The pandemic did like have an impact in the sense that, you know, I feel like there was a lot of experiences I don't really that I had to miss out on like a lot of events and things like that that you know were either just like not happening or they were only happening virtually um but at the same time like I could still feel the impact of like the film being a part of my life like I'm still doing a lot of you know interviews and stuff about the film even like you know two years after shooting it and um it's good just to see that people are still watching it and you know receiving it so well and it's just been like a really great time to see how it's doing and you know also all these like awards and stuff have been really gratifying and just it's been so nice when the critics awards started coming in like i I don't know if the new york film critics circle was the first but i think it was a, a pretty big one like did it take you by surprise were you kind of preparing for that moment or or was it a total shock um yeah it was definitely a surprise the whole film world and industry is like so new to me too because like I you know I was never really um aiming for an acting career in my life like it was kind of something I stumbled into really and um so I guess like the impact of all these awards took me some time to understand because I wasn't (laughs) very aware of what like all of them really meant and so like it took it would pretty much be like when my team would call me, I could tell how important it was by how excited <laughs> they were. And then I'd have to like do some research and stuff. But it, it is like really, um, it's just really wild to think that I'm receiving these awards and um, it's really validating. So the the story of how you wound up in the movie, you've told, you know, you've done a lot of interviews since then. You talked about how you met Eliza and her partner when they were making a movie or when he was making a movie in Buffalo and kind of stayed in touch with them. And I'm I'm curious about like, you know, you were 14, you were a musician already, but and like, you know, you were adjacent to the making of this movie. But did you think of knowing them as like as a professional connection at that point? Were you like trying to build a career for yourself at that point or is that just not in your brain when you were 14? Um, No, not at all. Like I just played music because I liked playing music. And when I met Eliza, like I honestly don't even really truly remember meeting Eliza at that time. Like it was so brief and I very, I only sort of remember meeting Scott. Like I kind of remember having a conversation with him, but I was so young, it was so long ago. And like they added me on Facebook, but like for years I kind of like just went totally like oblivious to the fact that they were still friends with me on there like I kind of forgot they were just people that added me when I was 14 and then I just it just totally left my mind so like when they did reach out to me all those years later it was really bizarre um and I just like totally didn't see it coming so you I think it's not that like Eliza had you in mind but like I think you did an audition for the movie before you went to the part what was what was that audition like um well first I like self-taped in my bedroom and then Eliza decided that instead she wanted to fly me down to audition but she also like we did this like more so unconventional audition so like it wasn't in like a casting typical casting environment like with producers and whatnot I met up with Eliza at her apartment 
and um, her DP Helen was there, and we just kind of like, we just kind of like went around the city, and they like, like videotaped me doing all sorts of like mundane activities and stuff, and then like I ended up doing some scene work with Eliza herself, like in her office, and um, yeah, like I just kind of spent the day with them, like going through little moments in the in the script, and and then I flew home and <laughs> just. Uh, you know, it was an interesting experience. Did that make it so that you felt... Because I think getting used to being on camera is so hard for people when they, when they start acting. And I wonder if that kind of casual environment made the camera feel less intimidating or made you feel like you kind of, like, knew how to be yourself in front of the camera in a weird way. Was that was that the goal that you guys were going for? I'm not sure. I mean, like, I just kind of showed up and what happened happened. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> you know, like, I definitely think it really helped... Um, that it was more casual and laid back. I mean, I, I've, like, I'm pretty sure that was Eliza's intentions was that she, that since, like, I had no experience with any of that kind of work that she felt that um, putting me in, like, a conventional audition space that that I would feel too overwhelmed and that, like, wouldn't deliver, like, a, a perform, like, my performance would have been affected by it or whatever. So... Yeah, that's why we had the kind of more unconventional audition. Have you gone to more traditional auditions since then and kind of noticed the contrast? Well, I have never been in like an in-person audition yet. I, because pretty much everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I tape from home a lot, which is, um, it's definitely still, it's an entirely new experience. It's very weird, just like standing in front of a wall with like my phone and reading a scene. It's, um... It definitely feels strange without, like, any environment or anything, you know? As if acting, like, isn't weird enough in itself and, like, doing it from within your own house. Yeah. Um, So, so much of the movie, like you are saying, like, you're kind of, you know, walking around the city in the audition in front of the camera. So much of the movie relies on you, like, being there but being really silent, like, and, you know, Eliza's movies, like, emphasize that. And, you know, your face is doing a lot of the acting, but I'm really curious about, like, what Eliza gives you in terms of direction and in terms of kind of guiding the performance when... You're not saying anything. You're not, you know, in theory, you're not doing anything, even though you're doing so much with your face. Like, what is the direction that Eliza gives you for moments like that? Yeah, I just kind of remember that she directed, like, really small moments. Like, while, like, things were happening, she'd be off screen just, like, saying, tuck your hair behind your ear. It's, like, really, really little details, you know. In terms of your face, like, how do you learn what your face can convey and while doing kind of technically so little but conveying so much? I really never thought too hard about it, about, like, like I never, like, consciously was, like, I'm going to make this face or something. Like, I um, I just remember, like, more so just, like, thinking about things. Like, I would just, like, think about something really specific and then, like, try to plug that into the scene. It's hard to explain, but, like, I was, I would just, like, think about really specific memories or something that I knew would, like, trigger a certain emotion and then, like, just kind of let that seep in. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, in in the kind of centerpiece, in the never, rarely, sometimes, always scene where you're talking to the social worker and um, it's it's your face pretty much the entire scene. Did you know when you were making it that it was really just going to be on you? Or did you guys kind of shoot it like a regular scene and that only uh, that only came after, that it was just all on your face? Um, yeah, no, I was aware it was going to be a long take. I had, like, two different cameras on me, like, this, like, kind of, like, one, like, right in my face and one, like, on the other side of my face, so I was very, like, closed in and vulnerable, and, um, 
yeah, there was a, I, like that and working with like the real social worker and everything like, I don't know, it just really created this environment that allowed me to be vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, the thing that struck me so much in the movie and is is the empathy that that woman brought into the scene and like it, knowing that she's a real social worker, it makes perfect sense. Like and she's bringing that when she's dealing with real people who are getting abortions. But I imagine and when you're acting and you need to be vulnerable like that, like are, are, are you feeling that empathy that's radiating out of her that I feel so much in the movie when you're in the scene with her? Yeah, no, I definitely felt that. And it was definitely a factor into like what helped my performance as well. It just made me so grateful that like people like her exist and do their job and like are there to take care of people because you just feel it so much. Um, so you guys are, you know, presumably filming at night, maybe not in the middle of the night as the movie is depicting, but spending all that time in like Port Authority and these kind of in you know, the subway and all these places at night. Like what what is the vibe like when you're I don't know how much time you'd spent in New York before this, but like what what are you encountering in New York when you're filming out in the real world at night and, you know, with everything New York has to offer? Right. Um, well, once we were specifically shooting in Port Authority, it was we weren't allowed, we were only allowed to shoot between midnight and 4 a.m. on like specific floors that were like closed, you know, and then we would like, yeah, and they hired a bunch of extras to make it look busy um, for those nights specifically. And, you know, those were overnights. So it was definitely fun, really fun for the sleep schedule. Um, <laughs> and uh yeah, I don't know, just, like, kind of filming out in the world, it was, it was, like, you know, kind of wild, because I feel like the, uh, like, kind of the energy of just, like, New York in general, and the busyness of it all kind of, like, helped add to this sort of, like, sort of chaos that translates over onto the screen, you know, in this environment yeah. that Autumn's in, that's, like, really, you know, she's just, like, very overwhelmed and anxious. There's definitely this moment where you're, you guys are on the train, and you touch the subway map and then immediately touch your face. And, like, watching it post-COVID, I, like, froze in my, like, stance. <laughs> and, like, it's something that, like, but it made so much sense for, like, an out-of-towner to do. Um, I don't know if you've watched the movie recently at all, but, like, watching it post-COVID really is a different experience of, like, being out in the world. Yeah, I know. I can imagine. Every time I watch anything now, it's, I have to, like, sometimes remind myself that, you know, like, oh, they're not wearing masks because, you know, it's, <laughs> this was before. It's <laughs> it, was in, it was in the before times. Like, I mean, now, like, you know, you said you never really thought about being an actress and now you're on this path. Like, are you watching movies in a different way? Are you trying to give yourself, like, a film education? Like, what, or are you still just mostly focused on music and seeing what comes from acting as it comes? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty focused on both at this point. I definitely watch things differently now. Like, I, I've i never really, like, paid attention, at least, like, as in much detail as I do now to acting, like, when I'm watching a film or a TV show or something. Um, but I, you know, I have been working with my band, and I still audition for stuff from home. And I have, like, a new role that I recently got, and I'm just, like, waiting to figure out when... Because, you know, COVID is just... Has just been the bane of everyone's existence. So, um, waiting to find out yeah. when we're shooting. It could be, you know, it could be spring, summer. Who knows? I'm not sure yet. Yeah, I mean, this this is gonna sound like a big question. Like I'm asking you to speak for like an entire generation, which is not fair. But like, 
You were in this period of your life where technically everything is supposed to be starting and this role has started something new for you, but like also you and everyone else in the world is stuck at home. Like, just like, what's your feeling from your friends who are your age of everyone who's just having to pause like this? Is everyone just incredibly frustrated? Are people making the most of it? Like, what are you guys going to do differently than than I got to do when I was 22 to, to start your life because of all of this? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course it's frustrating. Um, there's things I'd really like to be doing right now, but... Um, at the same time, I believe, you know, it's, it's out of my control and, you know, we're, I think, I think, you know, we're, we're going to make it out of it when we do, it'll happen eventually. And the way I look at it is like, you know, I have, there will be plenty of time still for me to do all the things I want to do. I don't think that there's any specific age or anything that I need to have done certain things. Like, I think everyone lives at their own pace and, you know, and just, just enjoy the time to get there. And, you know, um, I just try to be an optimist if I can. So right now, you know, with like the pandemic and everything, as much as I'd love to be on tour with my band, you know, it's, um, it's still a great time to like, I think, you know, like reflect and also maybe like use that time to write music and things like that, you know? So I just try, I try, I try to make the most of it. Has it changed the music that you make or have you tried to kind of translate any of this year of upheaval into your work at all? Um, I wouldn't say it's really made its way into there yet. Um, I think maybe more so when this is all over. I feel like usually when I write about things, it's like once it's already ended and then I process it like periods of my life. Yeah. So playing a teenager in this when you're, you know, a couple of years removed out of that, did that work in the same way where you can kind of like go back and revisit your teen years kind of more effectively than if you were still 17 making this movie? Yeah, I definitely think that's helpful because like, you know, I am able to sort of look on it now with a little more uh, like, I don't know the word to really use right now, but yeah, like I feel like I can like see myself from a different perspective in that sense and behaviors. Do you feel like the character in this movie is similar in any ways to who you were when you were in high school? Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. You know, I feel that, I mean, obviously with her being a performer, that's like a no-brainer. And, um, but that, you know, she's sort of, she seems to sort of suffer silently sometimes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, um, but also is really determined to you know, like, make the decisions that she does and whatnot. So I think I related to her in that sense. Yeah, I think this movie makes such a does such a good job of showing you how, like, teenagers, like, don't have a lot of options available to them and, like, have, like, whatever autonomy you can take when you're a teenager is so limited and still making the effort to do it at the same time is really impressive on, on the part of these characters. Um so maybe last question. So you've got, you know, the Gotham Awards are behind you. You said you've booked a role. You're waiting to film it. So what is next? Is it still more making music? Are there other things, like, in concrete plans for you? Um, pretty much just waiting to start shooting the next movie. And um, I've been working on, like, a little DIY music video with my band and hoping to write more music with them. So that's pretty much it. Is the, is the music video different from what you guys would have done for yourselves pre-COVID, or is it, like, more DIY because of the resources we have now? How, do, how does that work? Well, we only just started this band during COVID. We oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's kind of like it's 
Like, I've never made a music video with any of my prior bands because we never, like, got that far. But, um, like, if there wasn't a pandemic going on, like, maybe we would have recruited somebody to help us with it, you know? But we're trying to keep it just between the three of us. So um, we're just doing it all ourselves. Are you using anything you learned making this movie for making this video? Um, not really. I don't, I don't think I really... <laughs> learned anything on the film that I can that I can translate over to making a music video on an iPhone <laughs> <laughs> I guess the uh the production is a pretty different process from one to the other <laughs> um all right well Sydney thank you for talking to me I know I don't know how busy you are doing press for like almost a year now with this movie or maybe over a year now so I appreciate you diving back into it and um yeah good luck with with everything that comes next and you and Adam have fun yeah thank you so much I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. And now finally, we're going to close the show with my conversation with John David Washington, who uh, you surely know was the star of Tenet and is now in Malcolm and Marie, which is out on Netflix. Next week, uh, he stars opposite Zendaya in this um, shot during COVID production. It's really just the two of them in this gorgeous house in California. Uh, it's a marital drama. It's about Hollywood. It's about kind of making your own name for yourself. It, uh, it talks a lot about film critics. So, uh, Richard, you can avert your ears for this part, although he, was, he, he says he just doesn't read the review, so he didn't have anything mean to say about critics in general. But he was really fascinating to talk to. He's in production right now on David R. Russell's next movie. So he was, you know, talking about continuing his career during COVID, how he thought the pandemic was going to end it entirely. Um, I, yeah, I was really uh, delighted to talk to him. So let's hear from John David Washington. Well, uh, John David Washington, thank you for uh, coming to talk to me uh, about Malcolm and Marie. It's really exciting. The reviews are coming out today. Have you? Are you reading any of them? Are you? Uh, are you seeing the response yet? Uh, no, definitely, <laughs> definitely, am not reading. Staying away from it at least the first week and a half. <laughs> are you usually able to? Because you know, the, a major plot point in this movie is uh, Malcolm kind of being unable to not read reviews. Are you the opposite? Do you usually avoid it? Right. Yeah. Uh, I am the. I, yeah. I don't. I avoid it in especially with this film i'm definitely going to avoid it <laughs> so you know you know that there's some some poking at critics happening in this i would say i don't i don't look at it at that but i know that uh, it's it's addressed the relationship between critic and artist is addressed um but either way like even if i didn't do this film any film like tenet i didn't like, get reviews on that either do you think it's easier as an actor to kind of just like be able to then if you're a director and a, and a writer like sam like you can just kind of stay out of it and do your job and, and not think about the critics as much I think it depends. Depends on the filmmaker. Um, you know, some some artists might be motivated by what they what the feedback is from a critic. You know, some might be uh, so distraught or, or 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 sensitive to it that they put out their best work. You know, um, so I think it depends. Um, for myself, um, given who I'm related to and everything, I'm just I, I, is there's no winning for me anyway. You know, so uh, <laughs> I just, I rather not. You know, I just want to enjoy the movie and and have people enjoy it for themselves. 
Yeah. Um, to go back way to the beginning, obviously, uh, Sam and Zendaya have this long-running relationship uh, from Euphoria. And I'm just curious about how they brought you into the fold and, and maybe what it was like to start working with two people who had been working together for so long and, and, and jumping in. Uh, well, um, ex- uh, a big amount, a major amount of uh, excitement going in. I'm a huge fan of uh, Sam Levinson. I, was, I, I saw his uh, Assassination Nation film uh, years, a couple years ago. Um, and then Euphoria, obviously, that followed. I was, I was just, a, I'm just a huge fan of what he does. Um, and then, you know, what they did with Euphoria, he and uh, Zendaya. I mean, they're just a force. They're just a, a, such a great team. So I was um, a bit intimidated, excited, um, you know, thrilled to be able to tell, help tell this particular story. Um, you know, it took me a while to catch up to them because they're they're in, they're in great sync with one another. They can finish each other's sentences. They just think alike they have great ideas wonderful ideas about film and about storytelling that uh i was uh i got to be a part of uh during during uh, the time we shot it and it was great i i really learned a lot from both of them did you think you were going to go on a set again so soon like you know this came relatively early in lockdown and i think no one knew how to make a movie so how how did that feel just the idea of stepping back on a set I didn't. I, that's what's, what was so interesting about uh, when I got this uh, script of where I was in my life. You know, I didn't think I was going to. It was it came, became this dramatic. I didn't think I was going to ever work again. I didn't know what the business was going to look like. Um, I had this whole idea of uh, how I was going to sell Tenet, a worldwide tour, selling Tenet and doing this whole extravagant extravagant uh, rollout with it and it didn't happen i didn't even know if that was going to get seen in theaters properly so uh when i got the script like this i i i was brilliant for one i knew that uh for two it didn't matter what sam would ask me to do if he calls i'm doing it because i'm a huge fan and three i was so you know um starving to say something not just to work but to say something you know mm-hmm. i wanted to say something everything in the script I wanted to say, all well, in part, there was some stuff we you know, switched and worked together, but for the most part, everything I wanted to say. Um, so I was in a particular time in my life where I, I, I guess I saying, I'm saying that, say I took it selfishly. I wanted to do this film set. This was for me. I didn't even know if people were going to see this. I didn't know how the release model was going to be, streaming or whatnot. I didn't know what the rules were. Uh, all I knew was I wanted to do this, even if nobody saw it but the people we know. Yeah. It's interesting that you said you wanted to say something because, you know, a lot of times people like take acting jobs because they're interesting or they're working with people. But it sounded like there was like a, a point of view that you wanted to get out personally with this. What what was it that felt like it was speaking to you in that way? Uh, several things. I wanted I wanted to uh, experience love, you know, uh, not really having I mean, I'm, I'm single, I've been single for like seven, eight years. So like uh, experience love. I wanted to experience. Uh, I wanted to t- help tell a story of uh, a lot of artists I know that hate being in a box, which is what Malcolm was struggling with, identity, which is what also I can identify with. I, I, I know what it's like to try to create your own identity and trying to figure out your identity in your relationship to what you do and with the person you love. Um, there are so, so many social themes directly related to our industry that, um, that I really wanted to um, express. All that, also with that, I coupled that with I just wanted to to yell some stuff because of what I was <laughs> I was sitting with myself for a long time, um, you know, and I had a lot of time to think about what what my life was, what what I've done, some of the mistakes I've made, some of the things that have motivated me off of what people have said about me, to me, behind me, behind my back, all of those things, and I was able to funnel all those experiences uh, into a character like this. I was also able to take other people's experiences, frustrations, uh, love for what they do 
um, whether they're African-American or not, and put it and exercise that in this script, in this character, which is what I was very excited about as well. You talk about, you know, people putting you in a box and partly you mentioned who you're related to. You and Sam both, you know, grew up with people who are very involved in the film industry. And I wonder if that's a level on which you connect and, and the idea of wanting to establish your own identity outside of that. Yeah, um, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about that at all. I, I most certainly leaned into that. Um, uh, Malcolm and I have different tactics and uh, <laughs> and different ways of expressing some of these frustrations or some of these um, questions about ourselves. But uh, nonetheless, I felt I felt an alignment there between the character and my life in and, and, and some instances and uh, was excited uh, about being able to express it. I didn't know what it was going to look like or feel like uh, reading it and preparing for it, but it, it just kind of happened on the day. And the way Sam was shooting it, we were doing it in one take. So those rants, those long winded rants were one take. Um, so there's something that as an actor, as an actor's dream to be able to flow like that and use the words to help navigate. That's, that was my Google Maps to where I was emotionally and where I was physically, uh, given uh, what point I was in, in the uh, in the rant, in the, uh, in the uh, what do you call it? Like my mind is monologue. Like, in the monologue, <laughs> yes. So, so uh, and that's fun. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't setting different, different emotions. I wasn't place setting anything. I wasn't uh, punching any emotions. It could all flow organically, mm-hmm. which is what I was very excited. There's so much physicality to that, too. Like, there's that monologue and then the very beginning where you're kind of dancing around the living room. And I, I just watched Tenet and was thinking about the physicality in that movie, too, which is really different. But I don't know if that works the same for you, the idea of kind of, like, putting your body into a performance and, and letting it flow like that. Yeah, I, I, it's great when you get to do that. I, don't, I never know what they're going to look like until you get in there. Tenet was, you know, I had two, two and a half months of prep before we started Help me understand the concept of the of the movie and uh, and you know temporal pincer movements and you know and reverse entropy, uh, so all those kinds of things. Uh, the the stunt coordination really helped. And the Malcolm and Marie, I had no idea how he was going to move because of what he was saying. You know, there was something about his pace of talking uh, didn't match up with his pace of walking of movement. Mm. You know, they would kind of they would kind of juxtapose each other. So I, I liked that. And uh, and I find that he was constantly in his head, Malcolm. You know, these conversations, it's almost like, I mean, that Randy's talking to himself, but he's, he's dressing like as if there was a bunch of people in the room at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what is that? That could dictate movement as well. That could dictate activity. You know, so I wasn't planning to move around. I wouldn't say I didn't spot uh, a point. I'm going to stop here, say this. I'm going to go outside and say that. It kind of happened organically. And Marcel, I credit to Marcel and Sam, who um, who really um, were big proponents of naturalism, who really wanted to highlight that. I mean, black and white means that it's it's really on the, the performers now, you know, you because it, it almost feels like you get a heightened sense of, uh, of sound and um, activity. It's really highlighted because of the way it was shot, like all the movements will be um, accurately depicted and the rhythms will be like as they were there. There wasn't any really manipulation. Um, so everything, you're exposed in a way. So uh, yeah. you got to be alive always. And there's room for spontaneity, whereas, you know, a movie as big as Tenet or even like Black Klansman, you have stunt performers and stuff like that. You can't kind of move with something the same way you would in this, where it's just you and the camera and, and your co-star. Given, you know, given the, uh, yeah, the tone of the film, it, it was, uh, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of words, as you know, um, <laughs> physicality, is almost like a bonus. You know, if you can do both, if you can chew gum and walk, that, that'll help the film. 
I always find like if I need to memorize something, if I can associate, if I can like move around, be like that word goes with the dresser and then you, you move around the room. I don't know if it works that way when you're trying to remember a monologue like that, but it helps. Well, that's what I'm I'm glad you said that. And I thought that was going to get me in trouble. You know, that <laughs> would feel a little too presentational. I mean, that's a good way oh, to yeah. do things. And sometimes that is what the, you know, there's movies that that's what you need. That's what the director's going for. And this, again, they were embra- embracing naturalism, spontaneity, not the messiness, you know, let's, let's strip down how intellectual this is, you know, let, let's, let's, let's tap into our most primal instincts while saying these, you know, soliloquies, these, these, po- this poetry, you know, and, yeah. uh, the, and so this passion. Yeah. I mean, Malcolm's got this like deep bench of film knowledge and I don't know what what you maybe had to learn or dig into to get into that or if uh, if that was part of your process at all. Did you, did you give yourself a film education? I did. And, and I, I did actually like um, I like I've seen Ben-Hur and I've also seen Battle of Algiers, but I haven't seen them in a long time. So like, you know, watching them again as it relates to what he's saying, it it, it, it hit. It hit different, you know, yeah. as I say. And uh, and then obviously Spike Lee films, Barry Jenkins, who I, I just love them. I, I worship them. They're gods to me. Um, yeah. I didn't need to, to dig in that part so much because I know what, what they make me feel. And I know, I, I guess I imagine, didn't talk to them about it at all, but I imagine if they feel the same way as a Malcolm, you know, but I also think about is Malcolm as good as a filmmaker as they are? And I'm like, that's what I kind of battle with. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe not you know yet. I mean? Maybe or maybe not yet. Yeah. And and is he trying? Even though he admires these guys, is he trying to be that? You know, or William Wyler. The whole point is, I'm trying to find my identity. Let me do that, and you you wait on me. I'll tell you who I am. You know. Yeah. Did you watch Best Years of Our Lives? That's that's one of my favorites. Yeah. See, I, my mom told me to, I didn't watch that. <laughs> one. I know. It's um, and it's like beautiful black and white cinematography. Like when I don't know that it really looks like Malcolm and Marie, but like if you look at the style of this, and it's it's worth watching. It's like a good cry if you need some emotions to get out. <laughs> I did. I did watch also the faces. You know, Cassie. Oh yeah. Faces mm-hmm. Several times. That's one of my. Favorite. I mean, I watched it before this film, doing shooting this film, but I, it, it had vibe. It gave me that kind of vibe. Like like that might be what we're going for. You know. So yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again, dealing with naturalism and just mm-hmm. movement and the spontaneity, the, the very alive characters. Yeah. I wondered if you had any theater experience like before you got started on film, because I, I would imagine this like idea of like being able to move around in the space with just one other actor would compare to theater. Have, have you done much theater before? Well, I studied uh, um, HB Studios. Rochelle Oliver is uh, my teacher and mentor. Um, Stephen uh, Henderson um, also directed me in a play called The Dutchman, Lisa and I. And um we so I, I I like to say those are my roots. Although I've never gotten paid to do theater, I've just done it <laughs> in training. Yeah. And um and you know because I, I I when I booked my first job, uh, HBO, um I would go in the off season and study in New York. So I lived in New mm. York. I lived in Miami. Then I go to New York and just keep studying and, and mm-hmm. audition and study and study study. So I'm looking to go, to go up on stage uh, as a professional actor. Uh, Hopefully, you know, I, you just don't know what the world's looking like right now. For Yeah. Was that well, was that part of the plan? Like when, you, you know, when you started acting on screen and then you know, before Black Klansman, did you think like maybe you'd go through the theater route before you, you got to movies? That was the plan. I mean, discussing it with my my now agent, he wanted me to go on an audition for Ballers. And I told him I wanted to study first. And he said to do both. Um, you can go on an adi- on an audition because you're not going to get it. And you need to experience the room, what it's like to be in an audition room. And I thought, oh, no, that's no sweat. You know, mm-hmm. uh uh, I didn't know that uh, I was going to book that job 10 auditions later, but the plan was always to get back to the theater, get back to get to theater and go that route. And uh, and I still plan to. I still want to. That, that's a big goal of mine to get on stage. 
I like the idea that you have to know what the audition room is because I, I imagine there's not really anything that can prepare you for the audition process because it seems so scary and so different from in, like theater class. Believe it or not, though, my NFL failures really helped me with the mm. auditions. Like I, I've been on many several tryouts and it's even worse in football because they'll, they'll tell you we have your they, this is when you know it's, it's all bad for you. Thank you for coming in. We're going to we're going to contact your agent. You have the same number. Right. All right. And they fly you back to wherever you're going mm-hmm. and, uh, and you'll hear from us. And, and but you don't usually hear for like a whole season, at least in acting in our industry. You can go on like four auditions in a day, three oh, you know, yeah. ten auditions in a week. Yeah. I might have to wait a week or two weeks or a whole season and that, which I've done. So it's devastating. So I, I, I've been told no many times in football already. So I'm like, this can't be worse. You'd gone through the furnace already. Already. I was. Yeah. <laughs> I was already, I was like, I was impervious to rejection. (laughs) It was interesting watching this and thinking about Zendaya, who I think is 24 in her early 20s, and what you were doing when you were about that age. Like, because she has started, she started working really young. You were playing football really young. You both got like really professional, really young, when like a lot of people are still kind of figuring what they're going to do. And I wondered if, if there's a connection there for you and then for you starting your acting career later, if you feel like that, that helps you and that you've kind of been through one career already and now you're starting, you're an adult, you kind of know what you're doing more. Like, it seems scarier to start in Hollywood when you're in your 20s the way Zendaya is, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's, you know, a, a, a tremendous powerhouse. She's such a great actress and very knowledgeable about the business, too. She really, I mean, that's why I was leaning, I lean on her a lot uh, while we were shooting on just industry moves and and things of that nature sam as well they just know they've been in this industry longer than i have and yeah i mean she you know her being uh young and 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 really but yet you know quite you know you know older in in experience because of how long she's been in the industry that's why i was leaning on her um i was in a whole other i was in a whole other thing a whole other industry so for me it's like i'm really trying to catch up and learn the language that being said i didn't have the success that she had at that age i was a practice squad player i was a thousandaire not a millionaire you know and uh didn't have as many responsibilities as she does at that age i had i had them but not as many i was just worried about getting cut week to week not worrying about you know what uh what film i want to do you know and uh or what career moves i want to make i was just trying to get on the field so uh, I'm having to learn fast now, you know, which is mm-hmm. good. But I've all, those experiences, I, al- I, I, I always apply to, to what I'm doing now, for sure. Do you feel like you would handle it if, you, you know, if your face was on the poster for Tenet when you were 25 as opposed to now? Do you think you would have handled it really differently? Uh, I probably would have handled it. This, I probably would have handled it the same. I, and by that, I mean, I was I was geeking out now just as I would have been oh, sure. in, my, in my 20s. Like, <laughs> this is this is an unbelievable feeling. I, I, I thought I was the luckiest person on planet Earth. So I would just I would be a little kid who's just happy about the, the, the opportunity, just as I would be then. I know, like this whole perspective, because of what I've like gone through and failed at, maybe this you know, uh, makes it even, I have a greater appreciation, but I swear to God, I would have had the same appreciation <laughs> if I didn't go through those failures and heartbreaks and, and injuries. Um, yeah. but I do think those heartbreaks and injuries I went through, um, early on helps me when I find myself in like situations in this industry, when I don't know what to do, or if I have decisions to make, if, uh, if I'm, you know, that kind of thing, I'm like, I, I remember what I failed at or what I didn't do right in the NFL that could help. 
Yeah. And I think sometimes when people succeed at a really young age, they don't know what that sense of failure is. And you're just, you know, if you had, you know, jumped out of the gate and made Black Klansman, I mean, like, oh, wow, OK, every movie is going to be an Oscar nominee. And then when you know better and you have a little bit more experience, I mean, Zendaya, I think, proves the opposite is that you can be very young and successful and have a head on your shoulders. But I think a lot of people struggle with that. So being in your 30s and having this level of success maybe helps in that way. Well, also, too, I think this speaks to her experience as well. I mean, she's so humble. She doesn't have to be. I, I, I wasn't expecting her to be that humble, that cool, that warm and welcoming and collaborative. I really wasn't. I thought that was going to, you know, because she's a boss. And it's and it's a great example to me. I'm like, so anybody else I meet like uh, of that, you know, that caliber, I, there's no excuse. I, there's an example. There's proof positive that you don't have to be a jerk and be brilliant, you know, Sam as well. You know, I, I could say that about Christopher Nolan as well. You don't have to be a jerk and be be brilliant, you know, an auteur, you know, and that, that was, those are those great examples for me, I, I really appreciate. Yeah. So in the in the beginning of this movie, when Malcolm kind of burst in, kind of high off the energy of the premiere of the movie, you know, Tenet didn't get to have quite that same kind of thing. But I wonder if, like, did the premiere of Black Landsman feel that way at all to you? Was there a similar, like, rush of energy when you realize something you've done has gone so well? Uh, Cannes Film Festival 2018, that standing ovation, because I didn't know. There was some laughs and we were getting some good feedback from the audience. It felt good, but you still didn't know. And then when when credits hit, black credits hit, there was a bit of a pause of silence. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and then the, then the eruption. And then yeah. that, it, I, there is, I don't know if there's been a, uh, an experience like that since. Just for that, because of where I was, I mean, Christopher Nolan was sitting right in front of me next to oh, Benicio really? Del Toro. Yeah, <laughs> like like in a row right in front of me. Emily Spike is on my uh, right, my mom's on my left or something like that. Something like, or my, Spike might have been on my left, mom's on my right. I'm just like, this is the moment. My career is in the back, hangs in the balance right here, right now. First, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's first time I led something and all that. So it was just uh, an incredible, incredible feeling. I remember we walked, we go, you know, you walk back down the carpet take some more pictures, a couple more interviews. I got in the car with my mom and my brother and sisters and we were just wept. Tears of joy and just like overwhelmed with emotions and the ex positive experience of what just happened. Then we went to the after party and celebrated like rock stars. It was great. Yeah. I mean, that's just the kind of thing that like, it kills me that that didn't get to happen for Tenet or Malcolm and Marie, that like there's that that sense of like having your movie. I mean, what what sense do you get of when your movies are succeeding and like what kind of... I don't know, like, how, how are you getting any sense of, like, moving forward when experiences like that aren't happening? Because you've had two movies come out, like, they are being well-received, but what what do you take from it to kind of know that it's working and you're, you're on the right path? It's a very personal, very close people in my life that I've worked with and just in general that I've seen Malcolm and Marie and what they've shared with me, how they were affected by what they saw is a success to me, you know? Um Maybe that's why, and that's gonna. I'm gonna need that kind of armor when, when the you know reviews, or when I decide to read some of the reviews, or the reviews <laughs> find their way to me. I was no, say, I'm just serious. Stay away. Stay away. I just stay away, or maybe I just stay away. <laughs> but really, like people that I really admire, uh, that are excellent at what they do, out of some of the greats at what they do, what they've said to me about it, I, I just, uh, I hold on to that. You know, I just hold on to that very tightly, and know that uh, I got to keep pushing forward and keep doing, keep trusting my instincts. Um, it's funny. I, I, I uh, there, there was a, I, I did a, a panel and and there was an actor that said um, that you know when something's good. There's 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 an instinct that you know it deep down when you you hit something. You know when something was truthful. So you should always pay attention to that. Sometimes the outside or the outsourcing of noise and 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 feedback can wrongly influence you or or change what you want. But 
if what you want is to make the best thing you can do, if what you want is to say something, then your instincts you should trust. And that uh, that uh, I will also hold on to. It was great. Uh, I'm glad he said that. Yeah. How do you hold on to your instincts after something like Black Klansman comes? You know, that you get that standing ovation at Cannes, and I imagine you're getting things thrown at you from every possible direction and people wanting you to do something. And you've chosen pretty carefully and wisely, I think. How do you how do you make sure that you're still choosing well when the world opens up to you like that? Well, here's an example of football influencing my life still. Um, seeing people get cut every day, mm. you know, you know, like you could lose your job any day. I thought every day could have been it. Every practice, and that's all I was, was a practice player. That was a Super Bowl for me. Nothing is guaranteed. So I see my, whatever, if I'm one or 18 on the call sheet, this could be it. You know, I, I, so I don't try to put too much pressure on what I pick, but I have to say, I got at least, if this is, if I got an opportunity, I'm going to say something, you know, maybe Hollywood will be done with me or whatever soon. But if not, if I have these opportunities to work with people, I really want to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take advantage of that while I can, you know, and, and, and filmmakers that are saying something, stuff that I like that, that stuff that I like, uh, like what they're saying, how they say it. I want to join them. I want to learn from them. I want to, uh, and I want to make that kind of, uh, that art, that kind of yeah. art. So you've had these two movies come out that have been released like kind of as differently as you can. You know, Tenet like had a you know as good a theatrical release as anyone can have. Malcolm and Marie is pretty much on Netflix. Do you have any sense now with how we're going to watch movies? Do you have a preference? Do you are you just dying for theaters to come back, or do you kind of think that streaming is is going to be more of the future than it would have been? I love streaming because of the the uh, the reach capabilities. So many people can can see it and discuss it at the same time, but. I think about Malcolm and Marie if it was if it was shown in the theater in the movie theater the sound quality just it, it'll hold it, uh, to me the theater experience the theatrical experience holds you longer there's a, it's like an enchanting moment it, it's 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 something that you just rem- you always remember it stays with you longer you live with what you experience way longer to me you know it's not like a swipe 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 you know it, it's something that's that's um, sticking with you and, and maybe even influencing your mood, you know, sometimes a week plus years. And then you hear a song that reminds you of something. You hear somebody say something in your real life that was, oh, I remember that. That reminds me of that scene from the movie. And I think that's all due to like how you experience it in a movie theater, the intimacy of it, the huge screen when it's all black and nothing but sound and and these two powerful people saying these words, you know, like I, I just, it's, I mean, cinema to me is romantic, you know, even if it's a horror thr- uh, or a thriller genre. It's just so, so I love it. I'm in love with the theater experience. So you'll, so as soon as the everyone gets vaccinated, you're you're heading back to the movie theater. You better believe it. <laughs> Quick, fast, and, a, and in a hurry, yes. I was just telling my friend, like, with the, the Mission Impossible movie they're filming now, like, I want, like, giant building, like, 80 feet tall, like, huge. I mean, I'd love to see Tenet in theater, too, but... Yeah, yeah. I keep, I keep thinking no, about the way it. to see it. It's a different <laughs> film. Like with those Mission Impossibles, it, it, you, I don't want to like get introduced to them on on, on a nice big screen TV uh, at, at the crib. I want I want to be like you can imagine. Like if you don't know anything about the Mission Impossible series or 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 any of the Christopher Nolan films, you just, just all right, I want to see. I've heard about it. I want to see one like that. That's the way you get intro to it. Like yeah, that's the way to experience it. I want to feel my chair shake when I'm watching a movie in a theater. <laughs> um, Maybe one last question for you, and this is kind of big, and I don't know if anyone knows the answer, but, like, do you feel like the movies and theater and everyone, are we going to come out of this stronger? Like, do you, what's giving you hope for when we get back to, to semi-normal life? Um, being on a set right now, seeing how things are operating, this is a huge set. I haven't been on a, a real 
like a legit movie set like this since Tenet. I mean, this is huge. Um, they're figuring it out, you know, and uh, and they're being very diligent about it. I, I, I give I give everybody credit. Um, so that's giving me hope. Like maybe if this could happen, then it could be applied elsewhere and to where we can um, see it in theaters. That being said, I have no idea. You know, we'll see what happens. I have no idea. But maybe. I, I, I the, the hope, the hope is, I have hope because of my experience on this set I'm on right now. And that set is, what's what movie are you working on now? Sorry. Uh, a David O. Russell film. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> Not to reveal any secrets, just wanted to check. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I know you're hard at work and don't have a ton of free time, so I really appreciate it. And, um, you thank know, you. read those reviews if you want to and don't if you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Take care of what you want to do. I don't know. Do. Yeah, thank you. That does it for this week's show. As we said, next week we'll be back to talk about Sundance as well as the Golden Globe nominations and the SAG nominations. It's exciting. It's uh, the rush of award season we've been waiting for. In the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com where there'll be a lot of Sundance coverage. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Julie had to run, but she's at Julie W. Miller. And Richard? Rylaws. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best existential question about this podcast goes to Julie Miller. If that doesn't get you a nomination, what does? Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.